You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 82. Today, I talk with Dr. Jennifer Whittington, a truly remarkable surgeon. She shares with us her lessons on going through a divorce and when being a surgeon is held against you. She has tremendous lessons on what it's like when life does not go as the picture-perfect Hallmark card it appears to on the outside. And it's been a year in the making, but the Become the Boss MD book is coming out 20 June. If you'd like a sneak peek, head to bosssurgery.com to download the introduction and the first chapter. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have a great guest today. This is Dr. Jennifer Whittington. We had a chance meeting in DC after interacting online, and she has so much valuable information. She has had some struggles along the way that I suspect a lot of you can relate to. And I think really just hearing her story and how she overcame some of these challenges that quite honestly would cripple anybody. And she had not one, but many. And so I'm really excited to highlight her and to have her tell us her story. So Dr. Whittington, tell us a little bit more about yourself. So I'm a surgical oncologist in New York City and work in the Mount Sinai Health System and also at Elmhurst Hospital Center. And I'm also soon to be boarded in trauma critical care. And um, it's been an interesting path, like you said, but being very um, resilient and flexible and open-minded about things and innovative in a way to manage to be a single parent in a place that's very high cost of living and making that through a pandemic and, you know, through other challenges of navigating the healthcare system, of taking care of sick family members, you know, learning how to mold my career to what I'm really passionate about and what I needed to do to be there for my family was really important to me. And so many of us think, you know, I go to medical school and then I go to residency and then I go may or may not go to fellowship and may get a job and everything works out fine. But I mean, how many times does that actually happen? And so let's take us through the first struggle that you had. Um, I believe it was when you were in fellowship. Well, yes, that was the first one that I really went solo. But I think, you know, everyone talks about the straight and narrow path. And even from the beginning of my training, some of the things that were the hardest parts of my training ended up being the most valuable lessons. And I was very much that like textbook cookie cutter person up until the second year of medical school. You know, I, I went to undergrad, I paid for my college on a track scholarship and started medical school and was just like all my classmates. And during my second year of medical school, my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer and started treatment. She died during my third year. And I spent a significant amount of time literally going back and forth between my clinical rotations and caring for her. I mean, my dad and I basically took shifts doing that. And that was challenging, but particularly seeing her go through treatments and all the challenges of cancer care showed me an aspect of medicine that I couldn't have possibly learned in the books of medical school or even during the clinical rotations. And um, ultimately, I was really fortunate to find a tremendous mentor um, during my third year of medical school and decided to go into surgery. And towards the end of my fourth year of medical school, my dad 
became ill and after uh, a workup ultimately ended up going undergoing a whipple for what they thought was a pre-malignant lesion and unfortunately like a week and a half before my surgical residency started we found out that his final path was a um, stage 2b pancreatic adenocarcinoma so he started additional treatment after that but ultimately recurred um, towards the end of my intern year and I was so fortunate that my program director, you know, he knew that my mom had passed away about a year and a half earlier. And he gave me the opportunity to go home and take care of my dad, you know, pretty much for the last month and a half of his life. And to have that support from my residency program, I, I quite frankly don't know if I would have finished re resident or even, you know, matriculated into my second year if I hadn't had a program director that was supportive of me taking care of my family when I needed to. Um, certainly my dad's diagnosis and watching him go through his own cancer journey and just very much being inspired by my dad, my dad's surgical oncologist. That's ultimately why I decided to pursue a career in surgical oncology. And it was, um, the rest of my residency was nose to the grindstone. I became very passionate about cancer care. Um, I was very fortunate to train with a wonderful research mentor and developed um, as a surgeon scientist because of that and matriculated into um, my surgical oncology fellowship. I did have my daughter during residency and I was married during residency. And you talk about, you know, some initial struggles during fellowship. I think on the surface, especially the last couple of years of my residency, I even had friends that commented about how, how perfect my life was. And, um, you know, I had, I had the Hallmark Christmas card, you know, a, a attractive family, a beautiful daughter, both thriving in our careers. But underneath that, you know, there, we weren't happy. And I was already nervous about moving to another city where we didn't have any family, and starting a very rigorous surgical oncology fellowship, we were already not doing well. And once we got to New York for my surgical oncology fellowship, about two months into my fellowship, my um, I won't go to any any sort of details, but uh, my now ex-husband wanted to get divorced. And there was so much going on at the time. You know, of course, you don't want to be with someone who doesn't want to be with you. But also I was so completely into my surgical oncology fellowship and wanting to really throw myself into that. I didn't really take the time or the effort. And quite frankly, I didn't have the finances to seek out good legal care um, that I should have. And this is one big pitfall when it comes to being a surgeon going through the initial stages of how do I set myself up to go through a divorce? You know, once you've decided with your soon to be ex-partner, we're going to get divorced. What are the steps that you take? And for me, I made a lot of fear-based decisions. The first one was, oh, we just got to get divorced as cheaply as possible. And in hindsight, I think there were some premeditated aspects from his end, you know, he asked me to move out of our subsidized housing that was provided by my employer, which had I done that, we would have been evicted. And, you know, he I would have lost custody of my daughter immediately. So I fortunately didn't agree to that. Um, but w we went through just really a mediation to get divorced. And 
we vote on the surface level, we did it very cheaply. And I think the best advice that I can give anyone, there's there's no such thing as the cheap divorce. Don't think you're getting a cheap divorce and don't try to get a cheap divorce because you're going to pay dearly for it on the back end. And most importantly, the person that you married is not going to be the person that you're divorcing. There's a lot of anger and hurt and fear. And of course, you know, you you'll have lawyers really pushing people to really do some things that can be hurtful. And you'd like to think that that person that you were once in love with wouldn't do that, but you're, you're dealing with a totally different animal once you go through the divorce process. So my biggest mistakes were not hiring good legal counsel up front and um, thinking that I couldn't manage the finances initially to hire good legal counsel. So we got divorced within like two months. So again, we went through the process cheap and fast and there's no such thing as a cheap and fast divorce. It just, it's not going to go well. And not long after our divorce was finalized, he began processes to um, basically take custody of my daughter. I think, and there's a lot of details to that, but I was in a very demanding fellowship and it was sort of used against me that, you know, she doesn't have a financial safety net and because my parents were deceased and she works all these hours. It, it was always this underlying thing that I was an unfit mother because I'm a surgeon. And during that time, I made some pretty desperate financial decisions because not only was I taking care of myself and in this fellowship, but now I've got to take care of my daughter. I have to prove that I can pay, provide childcare and pay for said childcare, which is expensive everywhere, but particularly expensive in New York City. And I also had to pay for legal fees. And for anyone who's navigated the legal system, they, you know that there's mediation, which can be expensive. And then there's actually going to court, which is way more expensive than mediation. And at that point in time, as a fellow on a fellow salary, I was doing my very best just to pay up, to keep up with mediation finances. And even that was extraordinarily challenging. And um, it was hard. I mean, like I said, I made some very fear-based decisions. I, at one point <laughs> during a very demanding surgical oncology fellowship, I was actually delivering groceries and Grubhub just to make sure that I could afford childcare because if you can't provide childcare, you can't keep custody of your child. So, Right. And I thought you had such a great point when you said that the person that you married is not the person that you divorce, knowing that you're now dealing with a different person. So therefore you have to have different strategies is just something that I think a lot of people don't think about. And, you know, you've mentioned before that even just the process of trying to get some of this, the custody and things like that, is that the lawyers who do get involved, and I think you mentioned it was about $40,000, I think, a retainer, if you think you're going to court. Yeah, if exactly. And the lawyers that I had at the time, they knew that there was no way that I'd be able to come up with. And that's just the retainer. If you know you're going to court, once you start like getting into court fees and all of that, you people, you, you can get up to hundreds of thousands of dollars and it, it can get quite nasty and quite there's more to, you know, what we went through with additional custody mediation. But by the time it was all said and done, I paid around three hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Um, in legal fees just to go through again that doesn't even that includes the divorce but barely because we did that cheaply but just 
everything during the pandemic and right after the pandemic to um, keep custody of my child. And this is joint custody. Um, it ended up being that much. And that's really stunning when you think about it. And it's not an uncommon thing that I've heard of before is, you know, being the surgeon and having a demanding time that being used against you. Um, I know that that was also, um, I've heard it being used against women in the military too, if, with deployments and, you know, being a surgeon and deployed um, is a challenge. And so it's it's not uncommon for the, our job to be used against us. And how did you navigate that argument? That's a great question. So first off, you know, towards the end of my fellowship, I had an opportunity to move back to the South, you know, where we both had family. It goes without saying there can be cultural differences between the South and the Northeast. And I think, and I, I do know people who have had co judges and courts who've been less sympathetic to them in the South because of their full-time employment as physicians. And knowing at that time, some of their stories and what they had gone through and some of them even having lost custody of their children was a big factor in my decision to stay in the Northeast. Also, we were in the middle of like mediation and it just, the timing and my lawyer supported it too. The timing was really best for me to stay in the Northeast. And I made that decision based on that. Um, it got very interesting. So I started my first job and was an attending. And for the first time, I actually had the finances to protect myself legally and to stand up for myself. And at that time, my ex-husband and his wife had relocated to another city um, outside of the state. And then the pandemic hit. And being a single parent and working full time as a surgeon during the pandemic was challenging, to say the least. I was so fortunate that I had a fantastic au pair who she and her family have become family to my daughter and me. And I think it's so important that a family is a village. And when your village falls apart, it comes upon you that you have to rebuild your village. Like you can't, then that's when I used to be someone that considered myself very self-efficient, self-sufficient and I can do it on my own. And I had to learn how to ask for help and to not be embarrassed about asking for help and to be vulnerable to people that, hey, this is tough. But I built my village. I have a wonderful au pair. I've made wonderful friends in the community around where I'm at in New York City and, you know, su support from other parents within my community where I live that we take care of each other. You know, if somebody needs to drop their child off, I'm there and vice versa. And I nanny shared during the pandemic and learning how to ask other safe people for help and also be there to help others and just rebuild your village. That That's something I'm really proud of. Um, so post during the pandemic, you know, things kind of escalated with our custody and ultimately with the relocation, when it was time for the kids to start going back to school, it just was not feasible for my daughter to be traveling an hour and a half from his new home to the school where she currently was. And when my, and there were some other things going on that I won't go into, but when my lawyers basically filed and said, you know, we needed to change our custody arrangement because of his relocation, his lawyer responded in kind by asking for full custody, which in this, in 
divorce varies state to state, but in New York, to ask for full custody of a child is a big ask, and particularly to relocate the child from a different state. To demand full custody of a child is essentially basically saying that that parent is truly unfit, and oftentimes, at least in this state, to lose custody of your child, you have to be doing drugs, doing illegal activity, truly neglecting the child. And I certainly had never done any of those things. Um, I worked. I was a surgeon. I dared to be a surgeon and a mom. And unfortunately, his lawyer basically crafted a scenario that I wasn't the best parent and I was unfit compared to what he provided because I worked full time as a surgeon. And, um, you know, at that time, everything was still Zoom court because it was just just post pandemic. But to sit in front of a judge and other, you know, other lawyers and the other people involved in the court whenever there's a hearing and essentially be character assassinated just because you love your job and you also love your child like that will That'll put some hair on your chest that you got to be tough. And one of the most valuable things that I learned going through family court and my lawyers very much prepared me for it is that you almost have to be unemotional. You cannot react. You have to be you have to have a real poker face in court, because if you in any way come off as, you know, angry, reactive, sad, um, crying, you know, that's something that the other legal counsel could potentially use against you. And I was very fortunate that I had a judge who really took the time to read through our case and some of the details of it, recognized that my job was being used against me to try to, you know, take parenting time away from me, which is really unfair. And he saw the situation for what it was. And he basically did what what was important and what I'm really proud that the court did. They did what was best for my child. You know, they kept her in the school that she's in and they provided as much time as possible with both parents. And that was what I was happy about was what the best thing that happened happened for her. And again, because there was a relocation, she spends the majority of time with me now because when I finished my fellowship, you know, I turned down other jobs that broke my heart to turn them down, but I built my life around my child. And fortunately, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to build a life and create my career in such a way that I still get to do the things that I'm very passionate about doing. And I still get to be the parent that I want to be. And that's very important to me. And what would you advise someone who's going through this? Uh, I know several lessons that you've already mentioned, you know, preparing for the financial cost and and not being, you know, sticker shocked up front because cheap is not better. And, you know, it also sounds like, you know, the preparing for the character assassination um, that happens in court as as the person who is not the person you married is it's the person you're divorcing, which is different. You know, what else would you do to, to prepare someone going through this? The biggest things, you know, up front, if you're moving towards divorce or anticipating it, the first thing to do is to get all of your finances completely separated before you divorce. Um, because depending on what's and what accounts, things can be moved and you might find yourself missing tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> um, if you, you don't get things in order beforehand. So separating your finances up front, um, that's very important. 
finding out who the best lawyers are around and taking the time to make sure that you find someone that's a fit for you is very important and someone who's going to have your best interest. Um, you want someone who, and there, anything that involves lawyers is not going to be cheap. Go ahead and prepare and brace yourself for that and know that you're going to spend a whole lot of money, but also understand that paying a lot of money up front and not cutting corners will save you a lot of time and grief and hassle later. And like you said, you know, things get really ugly in court and people can say and do things that are untrue and are extraordinarily hurtful. And you just have to take a deep breath. And because I remember the first time I saw an affidavit from uh, the other counsel that was a complete character assassination with multiple things that were just completely untrue in it. And I cried and I called my lawyers. I was like, he can't, they can't say this. None of it's true. And they just laughed. They're like, all of our clients do this. They were like, this happens. This, this is family court. Get used to it. And I was, it was just another day at work for them. But for me, it was really hard to see and read those things. And one of, and they, um, my lawyers specialize in um, contentious cases and often when there's like a narcissistic partner involved and they really coached me through the things that I needed to do, not to show my empathic side, but to stand up and have a backbone and keep learn how to have my poker face. And that poker face served me well in court, but it served me well in life. I mean, certainly dealing with anything at work. I'm, and I think even dealing sort of in, in a leadership position when you're helping, you know, mentor residents or medical students or, um, you know, research associates. And anytime there are people that have issues with each other, I'm really good now. I found that one of my soft skills that I'm really good at is I'm very good at, you know, listening to both sides and mediating calmly between people and finding really good resolutions. And in so many ways, learning how to be really calm and keep that poker face, it's helped me in the OR. It's helped me as a teacher of residents and medical students. It's, it's made me, it's really helped my soft skills at work and it's made me a better surgeon. So, I mean, I thank my lawyers for teaching me how to, how to own that poker face. Cause it, it's a crucial skill in court and it's a really beneficial skill. Um, once you, you know, you can transfer it over into our work life as physicians and surgeons. And I remember you mentioning part of the process that you had to go through was, you know, like, was it like a mental assessment or something like that, that you had to go through? Um, yeah. That's something that, you know, because lawyers always anticipate that there will be those kind of character assassinations. And I think in general, anytime people want to undermine each other, and you'll see this in life in general, the first attack that people go out is, is questioning someone's you know stability in that sense. So anything you can do to get documentation that's very clear that you are a sane and mentally stable person is, is huge. And that was part of like one of the assessments that you have to go through. So in many ways it was very beneficial to have, uh, of course I knew that I was perfectly sane, but to have that <laughs> in writing from someone who is qualified to say that um, it, it's, it's a very helpful thing when those character assassinations do come up because it's like, those are completely baseless comments. And then it's, you know, gone. 
just like my lawyers were completely dismissive of it. They're like, oh, we're not worried about that because it was already very clearly documented that that's not an issue. And I mean, what a terrible situation to go through, but you know, what better way to figure out that when people say things, we actually have a choice on how we respond to it. And many of us are learning this in a much more reasonable perspective, but you had to go through it at a time that I'm sure felt, you know, highly charged in all of this. I mean, divorcing someone who was different than your Hallmark picture that you had and, you know, having a child and worrying about the loss of them and then watching your finances diminish. And oh, by the way, in a surgical oncology fellowship, take us through like, what they did for you in the surgical fellowship, you know, how did they support you or, or what was the struggles or the good things that came out of that? That's a, that's a tough question. I was able to, you know, at, at that particular fellowship, most people took two months of research um, time. Two months were dedicated to research. Some people took more. Um, but I sort of, my program director was very generous in the sense that I was able to, move my two months of research towards the spring because at that point in time I was waiting for my child with going through an au pair program it takes sometimes weeks to a couple months to get everything arranged with their visa and for them to arrive so while I was waiting for child care and basically getting everything organized with setting up my finances again and trying to recoup things that had been lost in the separation. Again, that's why I said separate your finances before you're divorced. Things that I had lost after, you know, wishing that I had separated those finances earlier. Um, I had two months basically. And it's unfortunate because as a surgeon scientist, I really, the selfish part of me really would have liked to have had more time to focus on my research because that was really important to me. But at the same time, I really had to set things up to make sure I had the, I had childcare, number one, just the physicality. I needed someone to watch my child while I finished that fellowship. And I was so fortunate because my au pair, I would not have finished fellowship had it not been for her support. And at that point, I recognized I had three decisions and I had to go with one of them. I could either keep custody of my child and leave the fellowship and go find a general surgery job somewhere. And that would have broken my heart because all I've ever wanted to do with my life since really since I was a fourth year medical student was be a surgical oncologist. So that was option one. My other option was allow my ex-husband to take custody of my daughter and just throw myself into my career. And I knew in my heart of hearts, I couldn't let that happen. My third option was to somehow figure out how to finish this fellowship and still keep custody of my daughter. And that's the decision I made. But during those two months, you know, I was allowed, they I basically was allowed to move those two months of research from my second year up till the tw- very end of my first year. And, um, utilize that time to sort of regroup with my finances, find a good lawyer and wait on my au pair to get there. And sadly enough, that's when I started and when I figured out, all right, I can at least cover my au pair's weekly fee if I deliver groceries in Grubhub, you know, and that's, that takes a lot of humility to be someone running around New York City at 1 a.m. delivering insomnia cookies so you can pay for everything. And then once, you know, my two months of research were over, I jumped back into my clinical training as a clinical fellow. And it's a tough program. It's, you know, it's the uh, one of the best programs. And 
I found myself listening to podcasts so I could be ready for lectures and to, to really balance doing what I needed to do just to financially survive in New York City and still be a fellow was hard. I mean, sometimes I would deliver groceries up until like 2 a.m., sleep for two or three hours and then be there for rounds at six. And it was unfortunate because there were times that people thought I was disinterested and disengaged. And the truth was I was exhausted. Um, and it's uh, nobody knew what I was doing to survive because I was too embarrassed and too ashamed to talk about it. And it's something that I can talk about now. And I think is important because um, there were some people there who were extraordinarily supportive of me and very kind. And, you know, if I had a weekend, they would offer to watch my child. And so I could go have some time to rest. There was an opportunity at that particular program. If you worked on Saturdays, you could get some extra money through the fellowship. And I worked every single Saturday my second year. Like people didn't believe that I worked every single Saturday. That's how much I did it. But I did what I had to do to survive. And some people were incredibly kind and supportive. And there were some people who weren't. Um, divorce is a stigmatizing thing. And particularly for women, a lot of people kind of have this sense of, well, what did you do wrong? Why couldn't you make it work? And there's a lot of shame involved with that. And, you know, I think my program did a number of good things. And there were a number of people who were very kind and supportive. But there were also people who gossiped and said very hurtful things behind my back that did get back to me. And I never acknowledged them because it's not worth it. But it's um, my big takeaway from it is I know now how to be very very supportive of medical students and residents who are going through challenging things. I've had a number of residents who are going through, who have started the process or are going through divorces who seek me out directly to ask me, what did you do? How did you do this? How do you navigate these things? And I'm glad that I can be a resource for them. And this is a bigger question that I don't know how to answer, but one thing that I'm very passionate about and that I hope on a national level and in some of the, maybe some of the organizations like AWS or ACS, we need to find a way to provide surgical parents subsidized childcare there. Um, no one should have to go through what I went through just to afford childcare. Um, and things got much better once I was making an attending salary, it became feasible and a little bit easier to pay for childcare, but trainees don't have the re everyone talks about oh just outsource everything hire someone to do your laundry have childcare. but if you're on a um, resident or a fellow salary and you don't have a financial safety net you can't just outsource everything because you can't afford it right. there's no way i was going to ask you you know obviously like uh, having more affordable childcare or some assistance with that would be helpful what other things you know could we do for the the resident, the fellow who's struggling? I think the most important thing is allow them a safe space. I had a lot of people who were well-meaning who would ask things. For instance, you know, there were a couple of times I had to go meet with a parenting coordinator and things that are involved in the legal system as you go through any kind of custody mediation. And I had to step out or you know, if I had a court date that I had to go to and 
some people would ask and ask some pretty probing questions. And I'm, I'm kind of a private person and I don't like, didn't want to talk about these things. And particularly when you're at work, sometimes work is your refuge that you don't have to talk about it, but just recognize that everybody deals with things differently. And some people are going to want to talk and vent. And if they tell you something, they probably want it kept in confidence and to not go and talk about them behind their back or make assumptions about them. It's helpful, but also if someone doesn't want to talk about, if it's something that could potentially be very painful for them, that respect and knowledge, they don't talk about it because, you know, there were a couple of times that people would ask me and in hindsight, me being, you know, trying to hold myself accountable, I was a bit reactive about it. I was like, I don't want to talk about that. Please just, and they, that may have been hurtful to them, but it would have been really awesome if I just didn't even have to, to rehash it because it, it was a very painful time. But I think that's important. And some of the things that my co-fellows did that were extraordinarily helpful, like really helpful, is if they were taking their kids out somewhere to the park or anything, they would say, hey, do you want us to take Heidi out with us so you can go get some rest? And that was huge. And just knowing that they acknowledged me and cared about me enough to know that, yes, I love my child very much, but just to have a moment to, to take a deep breath or go prepare for one of my presentations or study for boards was really helpful. But, and also not for people not to make assumptions about someone, if someone seems disengaged, it's not that they're not paying attention. It's in, in many ways, I felt like I lost my voice. I was, um, I was tired and I was certainly paying attention and listening and very much aware and felt like my knowledge base was good, but I was kind of at a place in my life. I, I didn't want to talk and I didn't want to talk about anything because talking at that point in time was a really hard thing to do. Right. So just recognize that everybody's in a, everybody's on their own path and providing people a safe space. I think in summary that that's the biggest takeaway is just to know that everyone processes things differently and, you know, divorce is a very painful time and letting people get through it on their own terms and not making assumptions about them is really powerful. You know, such wise words, because we never really do know what's going on. And I mean, we all say that, but you don't actually like really embrace it and think that, I mean, no, really something may be going on. <laughs> That's a, a lot bigger than we think. And when did it start to change for you? Or is this something that just gradually changed? Uh, something that just gradually changed. I mean, I think logistically, again, I, um, there was a lot of shame that I was dealing with. Again, I was a woman running around New York city, delivering groceries to pay for things. And that, that's a very humbling, embarrassing thing. And for a lot of you know people I worked with at that time, they had no idea what I was going through from a logistics standpoint, paying for childcare and just logistics of raising a child and working full-time as a surgeon got much easier when I had the finances to do that. That was a game changer right there. And I think the biggest turning point for me was finally having the finances to move from mediation into actually going to court, being heard in front of a judge. And it was so validating to have someone recognize some of the things that had been going on, like parental alienation and you know threats of essentially taking my daughter just because I work. And when you say those words out loud, it sounds completely absurd because 
how in the world would I pay for caring for my daughter if I didn't work? You know, like then on the flip side of that, you have someone who's unemployed and can't provide food or shelter or housing um, or even necessities for that child. So it's a real catch 22 and you can't have your cake and eat it too. And to have this judge acknowledge that one, I'm a, I'm a good mom who takes really good care of my child and doesn't just provide what she needs, but a lot of what she wants, but I'm also there physically for her. But I also provide a tremendous service to the patients that I care for while taking care of this little girl and to have someone acknowledge those things and acknowledge how absurd it was that my job was being used against me in such a way. To me, that was very vindicating. Um, that, that was the biggest turnaround point for me. Yes. Cause I can only imagine what was going through your mind before that. I mean, if you feel like you're in a no win situation and, and nothing seems to be making any progress um, and you feel somewhat isolated and people don't understand and you don't want to talk about it. So then you can't get people to understand. I can only imagine what that was like. Yeah, I felt helpless. And like I said, I, I couldn't talk. I walked around with a lump in my throat all day. That's, and again, I had lots of things to say and talk about, you know, every new clinical trial at conference. I had a lot of thoughts about it and I had read about them and, you know, listened to podcasts and the knowledge base was there, but putting my voice out there was gone because like I said, I walked around with a lump in my throat all day because what I was going through outside of work was so big. And again, I didn't want to talk about it. It was embarrassing it was humiliating and I was in a place that I, just, I felt helpless and I'm not someone who is used to feeling helpless. Stay tuned for part two of my interview with Dr. Jennifer Whittington. She's truly a remarkable person and her story is so inspiring. We have a lot to learn from her journey, her resilience, her strength, and all the lessons she's learned. For help on managing your own negative emotions, head to bosssurgery.com.